0: You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show. We're here with uh, Congressman Rich McCormick of the 6th District, uh, one of the good guys. He's a veteran. He's an ER doc and a husband and father of a lot of kids. Welcome, Congressman. How are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Okay, so last night um, they released this this border bill. Uh, You know, my whole position is that under both President Trump and President Obama, they did a thousand times better job controlling the border than President Biden has with the exact same laws that are on the books. I mean, not to say there doesn't need to be reform, but... President Biden has the power to control the border right now. What are your thoughts? Obviously, I know you haven't read it yet because it just came out last night. But what are your thoughts on what we need to do?
1: You know, I've said the exact same thing, is that if you're going to have any changes in the law, then being more strict uh, is going to be a compromise in the wrong direction. Uh matter of fact, it's not even a compromise. It's a giving ground. Uh, I said this from the very beginning. Uh, we have the same laws right now for a sovereign border that Obama had. Uh, Obama deported a ton of people. He had very few cross the border. And all of a sudden you have a a president who, his vice president, who has the same laws, has a massive problem because of the way he's not enforcing, because he's encouraged people to actually come across the border, because he's breaking the law, in my opinion. The the whole Remain in Mexico thing is a law still exists. You can't claim asylum by coming across three other countries to get away from your country and then say, I'm going to just end up in the United States. And the fact that we're actually processing people, letting people stay here on our dot, sending people on on airplanes, is becoming normal. Like we're we're accepting that that's just how it is, that you can stay in schools, you can stay in airports, you can be transported all over the United States on American payers tax dollar uh, to the tune of an entire congressional district every three months now. That's ridiculous. That should be scary to people. They cannot work. They cannot pay taxes. They only consume. They're like locusts. Uh, and, and the amount of drugs and crime and, and horrible things that come across the board, board border with uh, child trafficking, it's insane that we even allow this. It's, I mean, it's, it's 20, out of it's- control.
0: It's 21st century slavery is what it is, and it's happening on our watch. Um, And I heard something really interesting that that I hadn't thought about before, where border security is national security and is separate from immigration policy. You know, and, and I know that the two are intertwined, but it makes sense to me because having a secure border is what you need to have a secure country. And then immigration policy should be layered on top of that. Does that make sense?
1: absolutely i think this is what this fight is about is and, and the funny thing is you have the federal government step in and say oh texas you can't you can't protect the border that's that's a federal issue but then they have another state who says uh we're gonna outlaw guns and that's okay they're winners and losers and this is what i hate about the federal government is that they're not even handed uh whoever's in charge gets to kind to of pick who wins and uh, this is just not the way our government was supposed to be to begin with. There are certain inalienable rights that are set up by the Constitution, and we have a sovereign border that's supposed to be supported and defended by the president and everybody else working for the government.
0: Do you have any hope that anything's going to get done this year? Because it seems like we're already in this um, election mode. And while I don't want to see, you know, I don't want to see Biden win any more than anybody else, but. I am an American before I am a Republican or a conservative or a partisan. And I'm worried, Rich, about what's not going to get accomplished this year because we're fighting about politics.
1: You know, this is this is the thing that we keep on saying, though. Everything's tied to H.R. 2, which is what codified codifies yes. the laws that we've always had. And uh, I, I don't this is why I keep on voting against the CRs. I'm like attach HR2, dare them to turn it down because it's overwhelmingly popular amongst the American public. At least 70%, probably closer to 80%, want a sovereign border with without this crime, without this child trafficking, without the fentanyl, without the overwhelming number of people coming here who are going to be without anything of means every single piece of food they eat all their shelter all their medicine all their education all their everybody who's born here will all come out of your pocket and we've had 13 congressional districts worth of people cross the border since joe biden has been president and they've been disseminated through the united states we are at a breaking point should have never been done we need to start deportation right now um or we're gonna have a catastrophe i mean we're already having a catastrophe
0: Well, I mean, I saw a number that there have been 1.5 million uh, deportations adjudicated since Joe Biden took office. That means they went through the legal process. It's been determined they're supposed to be deported and he's not deporting them. You know, so this guy has no respect for the rule of law. Now, I want to shift gears for just one second. Um where you know, you were supporting Ron DeSantis until he got out of the race and we talked about that on a number of occasions. Um and but now you are supporting uh former president Trump. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Well, the, the whole reason I I supported DeSantis to begin with is I I thought he was the one guy who took uh the budget seriously, who took the debt more seriously than the most. And I think one, the one criticism I had of Trump is that during his presidency, when we controlled the Senate, when we controlled the House, we had a trillion dollar deficit during one of the best economies we've ever had in the United States. That means we're not taking it seriously. Now you can have a great economy and we're gonna have a great economy this year, by the way. They're gonna probably have a prime rate cut. We're gonna have a booming job market. We're gonna have an economy that looks great, but we're heading towards a cliff because this debt ratio, Uh, This debt-to-GDP ratio is so out of control, we're we're one of the worst nations in the world. We shouldn't be that way. We have a spending addiction. We have a problem. If we don't get it under control, it will crash the economy. How? When you have that much debt, you get downgraded as a money currency standard, and we are the currency standard of the world. Since we went to Brexit Woods back in the late 60s, early 70s, we became the gold standard of world currency. Now we know we have a competitor with brick. We know how we have cryptocurrency out there, and if we continue to move away from a United States-controlled market or as a currency, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And it's going to downgrade. It's going to make our, our currency more uh, so expensive to borrow against, and the Federal Reserve is going to break us. We're, so, we're paying more in interest than we do on our our military budget right now
0: so we've got about 40 seconds left and just i'm glad you mentioned about the spending because that was my one biggest concern about former president trump is he didn't ever talk about spending much he's a real estate guy so he likes leverage do you feel comfortable that he's going to be more responsible in that arena
1: i hope so i hope the representative body the the congress takes it more seriously regardless who's president um, but my concern is still continues to be that it's very easy to be president and and have a great economy and feel good at the time but if you're not preparing for the future if you're not being visionary we're going to have a problem for our children and our grandchildren and this country will fall away as the world-leading power and, and we have to watch over this we have to be good stewards of the blessings that we have to live here in this amazing country
0: rich mccormick i appreciate so much your honesty you're willing to to give this service because there's a lot of other things that you could be doing and i appreciate you very much thanks for being with us today
1: always a pleasure martha you have a blessed day it's where
2: north georgia comes to talk it's the martha Zoller show on am 550 and fm 102.9 wdun
0: it is the martha Zoller show and joining me right now is my good friend colonel jim lechner he's retired from the united states army but i don't know if he's really retired. Anyway, he he has written a book uh, that we've talked about before, but it's just one of those things that we need to talk about again called With My Shield. But he's also been very involved in Ukraine. So we wanted to have him back on again. Uh, Jim, welcome back to the program.
2: Hey, good morning, Martha. It's always honored to be here and good to talk to you.
0: So tell us about With My Shield.
2: So we, we rolled the book out in October, which was the 30th anniversary of task force ranger in the battle in Mogadishu. And I, I was really glad to get it out there, not just to tell my own story, but with the passage of time, there's there's been a bunch of misconceptions and some myths that came up surrounding the battle. So I was able to do a bunch of research. Um, I'm also a history professor at Liberty, so I was able to use some of that skill to do some research and uncover some uh, never-before-published facts about the battle. So uh, it was really a good experience getting it out there and being able to tell that story again because there's so many people that that actually don't know that story. In in, uh, in spite of the fact there was the movie Black Hawk Down and things like that. So,
0: what do you think is the biggest misconception? Because it really was the start of a lot of events that we're still dealing with today, um, and I guess the modern start of events we're dealing with today. What's the biggest misconception?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I don't know if it's a misconception, but um, one of the little understood facts is that al-Qaeda was was deeply involved, and I actually call it the first battle against al-Qaeda. At the time, Osama bin Laden, before he went to Afghanistan and hatched the 9-11 plot, was operating in the Sudan just to the north of Somalia, very close ties between al-Qaeda and Adid's forces that we fought in Somalia. In fact, uh, there was training that went on, there was al-Qaeda advisors on the ground during the battle, and I'm convinced it was actually al-Qaeda terrorists who operated some of the weapons that shot down some of the helicopters. So the connection with al-Qaeda, the fact that it was the first battle against al-Qaeda, and uh, and both sides, I think, learned a lot from, from that battle.
0: And um, what are the lessons we need to keep learning? I mean, because it seems like we, I think that one of our biggest Assets and our biggest problems is that we are a positive, forward-looking people, and so because of that, we tend to think we've solved problems and that we never have to deal with them again. Uh, and and but what we see is whether it's what happened on October seventh or what's happened multiple times since Somalia, we continue to have these issues. What what do we need to do?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Martha. Those are those are some great points. You know, it was a a Democratic administration during Somalia uh, under President Bill Clinton, and they tried to approach this from a very restrained manner. Let's do the minimum amount we can, in my view, uh, some incompetent aspects of their policy. And you're seeing the same type of thing from the Biden administration, incompetent withdrawal from Afghanistan, incompetent approach to all these security issues. And, again, in my view, President Trump took the absolute right approach to national security, and foreign policy, is no one wants to go to war. I mean, we're tired of decades and decades of war. We don't want to be proponents of that. But you absolutely avoid war by strength. And one military strike against Soleimani deterred Iran during President Trump's administration. But back to the Somalia lesson, one of the lessons they learned was if you can inflict casualties on the U.S., uh, they're, they're going to back down and they're not going to be in for the long haul. And that's exactly what President Biden is demonstrating now in the Middle East. And you see things just falling apart with these incompetent half measures. Nobody wants to commit troops on the ground. But if you're going to go in militarily, you have to go in as the strongest dog in the fight. And they're just showing nothing but negligence and incompetence like we experienced in 93.
0: So what do you, um, when getting back to, to your book, What do you want the message to be? And then let's get an update on Ukraine, because I think people are not talking about it.
2: Yeah, you know, the message that I there's a there's a number of themes to the book. Again, this was the early 90s. The military that we see today is vastly different. And I've served with lots of diverse types of people and different people. You know, some of the best soldiers I've served with happen to be female, et cetera. But back in the 90s, it was a different military. And so it was a group of men that fought together in a brotherhood on the ground. And you just can't achieve that the way the military approaches diversity now. And it's got nothing to do with cultural things. It's about, in many cases, it's purely about bio- biology. And so that's kind of one of the themes is back in the 90s, it was a brotherhood that fought together. We were trained somewhat, uh, in, in some cases, what society sees brutally, but there's a reason for that, the whole Spartan theme of how that task force was trained and the reasons for that and how that manifests itself coming together in combat in, against overwhelming odds and, and you know prove the, the time that those things are the That's how you win wars. That's how you train men to fight wars, and that's how you win. And you see an extremely different approach by the Pentagon today, and I hate to say I think that's manifesting itself on the battlefield. So to tell that story heroism of the guys that fought on the ground that day and in the air, the helicopter pilots included. That was really my reason for writing the book.
0: Well, I, you know, and I appreciate that you do that, and I appreciate your continued service, because we have this situation where there are some complaints here in the United States where we haven't had accountability for the money that we've sent to Ukraine, um, but also, there is this—you know—we if we're going to be committed, we need to be committed. So, you've been to Ukraine a number of times. Tell us, give us an update, as well as what we need to do now.
2: Yeah, Martha. So, I, I like—I like to say—you uh, know—Somalia was my first war. I served in five different wars after that, and that's—you know—that's one of the reasons the Lord took me there. And if you read my book, it's, it's far beyond coincidence. I mean, it was clearly—you know—a destiny or a duty that the Lord. Had. Me in Somalia, and one of the reasons for that was to go on and help continue and try to contribute to different situations in five different wars after that. And Ukraine is one of them. I've been there for almost two years. I came home just before the holidays to take a break, but I've served uh, on nearly every battlefield in the war, either covering as media or assisting the Ukrainians. And one of the things that perplexes me is I, I understand the problems in this country. I mean, I'm, I'm extremely conservative. Uh, extremely concerned about the marxism which is tearing this country apart however to compare our problems to defending ukraine to me is like apples in iraq not even apples and oranges that's a democracy fighting against the Red army and you may not like all the aspects of the zelensky government but it was a legally elected government there's no one in that country that disputes his election many people i know dispute president biden's election so To me, I just can't understand almost the hypocrisy or the irony of people that are critical of our support for Ukraine. A democracy fighting against the Red Army. Not a perfect system. Sure, there's corruption, but there's just as much corruption on our side and certainly incompetence. I agree with people like Rand Paul that think there ought to be extreme oversight and supervision and support, but that's negligence on our part. That's the Biden administration just dumping things off on the Ukrainians and then wondering why there's no accountability. And I can tell you, it's like World War I with drones up at the front with Ukrainians fighting against the Russians. And this isn't some sort of, like, territorial dispute or, or some sort of argument between some Slavic guys. You know, this is Ukrainians fighting to defend their homes against the Red Army. And, and, again, I just get extremely perplexed by people that are against fighting for Ukraine. I understand helping our country, but, again, this is Poland in 1939, or this is any number of freedom situation against an invader of the Red Army. So I would encourage people to look that way. And, again, let's let's have accountability. Let's have as much oversight as we can. But the people that are administrating this on the U.S. side, they are the ones that brought you the disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan. They brought you incompetence where they can't even keep the chain of command informed of their own status. I'm talking about Lloyd Austin. I mean, these are one-plus-one mistakes. From a history of people that have incompetence, and so I don't think, though, that Ukrainians are to blame for that.
0: Yeah, I think um, you know, I think that we have the the big problem. And look, I said this when President Biden was elected, is that, and when he was running, is that I didn't have any problem with his domestic policy per se because we could work our way out of that. I mean, it's a difference of opinion. My problem with Joe Biden from the beginning was that. His, his foreign policy, he had been wrong on every issue since he got into the Senate in 1975, including getting rid of Osama bin Laden and uh, the, what you mentioned related to the Afghanistan withdrawal. And now the responses to the attacks on our soldiers and the deaths of our soldiers in the wake of October 7th. I mean, he just can't get it right. They're the gang that can't shoot straight. And it is, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that 100%. It's just demonstrated negligence and incompetence. Ukraine is just another one, another aspect of that. Um, You know, while there are high publicized assets we provided, like the HIMARS and things like that, you still on the ground see that it's a half measure. They're not getting enough equipment. They're not getting enough ammunition. They're not getting it in in a competent manner. And so a lot of that is on the U.S. and on the Western allies. And when you go back to the big picture about why this is important, The Russians are watching this, the Iranians are watching this, but more importantly, the Chinese are watching this. And just like Somalia, where lessons were learned and drawn by the enemy, the Chinese are drawing lessons from this about our incompetence and our our basic impotence in being able to respond to these things.
0: So, Jim Lechner, how can they get your book?
2: Uh, It's available on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble and Target. It's an easy uh, Internet search with my shield. Uh, And I I just encourage everybody to to take a look at it again, to honor the guys that fought there. And and then there's some lessons learned like we've talked about today. So thank you, Martha. Putting the talk in News Talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN.
0: Andrew Clyde is here with me right now. He's the 9th District Congressman. He's one of the hardest working guys. Uh, His best asset is his creative and very talented wife. I'm sorry, Andrew. I I do love your wife. She is just like one of the best people I know. But he works harder than almost anybody up there in Congress. And he's always going to tell you the truth. And I appreciate him being with me today. Andrew, welcome.
3: Well, Good morning, Martha. Great to be with you. And thank you. Uh, I agree with you. Jennifer is much better than me.
0: She (laughs) is the best part of you. And that's the way it should be. You know what I mean? I And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I just, I think that she is just, you know, I just love being around her. But anyway, I don't know how you do what you do. And I know it's because you've got great support at home. Because you are in the middle of this firestorm. And I don't know if you heard me before you when you were on hold. But I want to know... We had supposedly the president proposed a border bill at the beginning of his term. I don't think it ever got voted on, but he had a Democratic Congress, a Democratic Senate, and he was a Democratic president. Then the the House of Representatives put forward H.R. 2 and passed it when you guys took over, and it's never been taken up on the Senate. Now you've got this this so-called compromise bill that, um, you know, I. James Lankford is a very conservative guy, and this may have been the best deal he could have gotten in the Senate, but it's not a good deal for the American people. Uh, Why can't we get to conference, since there is legislation out there, and actually have a real negotiation instead of this behind closed doors, you can't see it till we're done with it kind of garbage that we have?
3: Well, Martha, I'll tell you that um, right now, just like what you had previously said, uh, you know, President Obama had the authority. President Trump certainly had the authority and used it very effectively. President Biden has all the authority that he needs to control the southern border and the northern border. He could right now, in statute, right now, he could end catch and release. He could reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy. He could end the parole abuses. He could detain inadmissible aliens he could use expedited removal he could rein in the benefits for illegal aliens and he could with presidential proclamation he could suspend or restrict entry for every solitary illegal alien that tries to cross our border but he refuses to he doesn't want to he wants all of those folks to come in to get on the government dole and to become new democrat voters at some point in the future that's the entire intent of the southern border uh, so he has the authority right now, but he refuses to use it, and he 's actually violating the law so the reason that we passed h r two was to increase the guardrails to to strengthen the guardrails to make it more difficult for him to violate to continue to violate the law and that 's why h r two is so necessary um, but he if, you know if if he really wanted to, um, he could use every authority that he has to stop the invasion at the southern border.
0: And what concerns me, too, about the Senate bill is that it basically, if it were passed, and it's not going to be, but if it were passed, it would put in place, uh, I'm going to use your word, guardrails, but they're not. They're, it, what it would do is destroy the ability of the next president to be able to control this situation. It is a worse situation than what we have instead of a better one.
3: Um, so, do you mean the the, the Senate bill the Senate, bill? the Senate
0: bill. The oh, Senate bill.
3: Oh, absolutely. If you know, fortunately, the Senate bill is dead on arrival. Yes. I mean, I'm, in fact, it, it's dead in the Senate right now. I think we'll, we'll see that today. But, in fact, honestly, it was one of the most amazing takedowns of a bad piece of legislation I've ever seen. Um, so the, I commend the conservatives out there uh, that reached out to their representatives and their representatives that stood strong. I mean, that's the way it should happen when you have bad legislation. And this was incredibly bad legislation. I mean, we could go through what it would have done, but I, it would have literally you know, validated or put into law The fact that 1.8 million illegal aliens could come across, could come every year, minimum every year into our country. And and see, Uh, what I
0: don't understand is that on the legal side, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the legal side. I think you and I uh, would agree with that. But we allow 1.1 million people a year to come into this country legally, and that's more than the rest of the world combined. Now, why the, the, the lefties in this country, the progressive, so called progressive in this country somehow want to paint us as an anti immigrant country. By no definition, by no definition are the laws of this country anti immigrant. But we're not following the laws right now, Andrew. And and what we have is our anarchy not only at the border but in major cities and everywhere around across this country.
3: And, and you're absolutely correct, Martha. We have anarchy at our southern border. But it's anarchy by choice. You know, this is a self-inflicted wound by the current administration. And that's one of the reasons why. And Secretary Mayorkas is the point of the spear when it comes to the Biden administration policy on the southern border. And that's why it was so important to have the vote yesterday to impeach him now. The vote failed by literally one vote, all right? It was a tie. It was 215 to 215. But that's okay. We had one member, our current Majority Leader, Steve Scalise, was out on on sick uh, leave uh, recuperating. But he'll be back. He'll be back, I believe, next week. So I think what you'll see is we'll have another vote next week, and we'll pass this resolution. And it'll pass 216 to 215. And we will impeach Secretary Mayorkas for two things, one, failure to follow the law as written basically violating the law and number two lying to congress those are impeachable offenses and those are absolutely rock solid impeachable offenses and that's why he needs to be made an example of and go to trial in the senate
0: so i want to ask you um i'm i'm concerned about Uh, Kind of what and I know we don't want to get too much into politics, but it's hard to separate the politics from this situation. I'm concerned about um, kind of the disorganization of Republican parties across the country. We should have no trouble um, electing a lot of Republicans in this election this year, but we're making a lot of mistakes. Do you see it that way or am I missing something?
3: Well, um, no, Martha. I, I don't necessarily see it that way. I see that there's a, you know, there's certainly in the in the presidential arena, there's some um, uh, some infighting there, and and I think that that will uh, after the, the next, um, you know, Super Tuesday, um, I think we'll see that will settle down, and we'll focus on literally taking back the Senate, uh, taking back the White House, and um, and maintaining the House and growing our majority in the House. Um, you know, this president and his policies have been a disaster for this country. The Senate has gone along with it, the, the Democrat controlled Senate. So I think the country is seeing very, very clearly that um, the Democrat Party is taking out us in the wrong direction. And I mean, whether it's Americans dying from fentanyl, um, you know, or whether it's the crime crisis that we're seeing, uh, all of this, you know, and the disaster of inflation—you uh, name it, Martha. We are having crisis after crisis here in this country because of the policies of this administration, and the American people are not—you know—they're smart and they see it, and they realize that this must change, and a change in leadership will will fix this issue.
0: Now, what are you working on right now yourself, as far as legislation is concerned?
3: Well, I'll tell you, we are about to have a piece of legislation come forward. It, it passed through committee yesterday um, to redesignate. Again, and this is a policy, this is a correction of a policy issue from the Biden administration. You know, the Houthis uh, are a terrorist organization, and but they are not designated as such. Um, President Biden, within his first month in office, um, eliminated the designation of the houthis as a foreign terrorist organization and removed the sanctions from them which allowed them to cause the the disaster that they are causing in the red sea and in that area around there attacked commercial shipping etc so i have a piece of legislation that's coming forward um, that will come to the house floor which will redesignate them as a foreign terrorist organization and reinstate sanctions which is what president trump did and president biden undid that we are going to through legislation have to redo um so that's the first piece and then of course we're continuing work on appropriations uh, that's my committee and um i was speaking last night to the to the uh, uh chairman of those committees of the different subcommittees uh, trying to make sure that that our path toward a a um uh, a better financial future for america is what and we're doing
0: i know that you voted for the israel funding yesterday that's right correct did i read that right
3: no, that is not correct. Okay. I did not vote for that bill and the reason I did not vote for it is because it was not paid for. We could have done that. We could have put on the floor a bill that paid that was supporting Israel but paid for. All right. I did that back in November when, you know, Mike Johnson, Speaker Johnson put a, a stake in the ground and set a standard back in November. All supplementals will be paid for and we and we did that by passing Israel's support a paid-for fashion, rescinding money that had been pre-approved or pre-authorized, <clears throat> pre-appropriated for the Internal Revenue Service. We can do exactly the same thing. There are billions and billions of dollars that have been advance-appropriated uh, that Pelosi did when she was the Speaker of the House that we can rescind. We don't have to borrow money, Martha, and we shouldn't be borrowing any money to do this.
2: It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9, WDUN.
0: It is the Martha Zoller Show, and we're so happy to welcome back Lee Cohen. He's a columnist uh, in The Spectator, The Sun, The Telegraph, Fox News. He's a fellow of the Bow Group, the Bouges Group, and the Danube Institute. So thank you so much, Lee, for being with us today.
4: Delighted to speak to you again, Martha.
0: You know, um, I my husband's a two time cancer survivor. Uh, he's eight years now down the road. So uh, I lost my mother, my sister, and my father to lung cancer. So of course, when I heard the news earlier this week of um, of King Charles's uh, cancer diagnosis, I first thought. In this terrific that he's talking about it because it really does encourage people. And we've seen that not only in this country, but in the UK, people are calling, they're trying to get early screenings. They're doing all the things you should do. So I thought it was good. I thought it was different because generally the Royals don't talk about their health situation. Uh, And then I thought about what would happen, you know, with, with, Um, Prince Harry, and we saw kind of answers to all of that. Give us your initial thoughts, and then we'll get into the meat of this.
4: Well, um, yes, I think you make a very good point, sort of drawing a distinction. Traditionally, uh, and when when Queen Elizabeth and before her uh, were on the throne, they didn't lease very much information, and people really had to read between the lines. Um, So uh, King Charles's coming forward with this kind of transparency really uh, is a watershed moment for the monarchy. Um, He felt he had to do it so that there wouldn't be all kinds of speculation with what was going on, but also uh, it had a noble purpose in that he wanted to raise awareness uh, uh, for, his own, uh, for his own subjects that the importance of early screening for cancer and uh, for diagnosis. So um, it, it really is a difference in that it's letting sort of more light in on very private matters that were handled differently before, but it's with a noble purpose.
0: And, you know, it's kind of on the heels of... Uh, the uh, Princess of Wales being in the hospital for a very long stay. A a 13, 14-day stay in a hospital in today's world is a long hospital stay. And they took a different tact. You know, they said she was going in for abdominal surgery. They said how long she would be in, how long she'd be recuperating. But they've shared much less information than the King has.
4: That's right. And in fact, um, they didn't tell us about this until after she was recovering. You know, this makes the point. Um, the royal family are not private citizens like you and me, whose who's, um, who's uh, you know, medical issues. Medical issues are important to the public because they are. Represent the country in a way that even our head of the state doesn't. Uh, they are people who are emblematic of their country, and in that regard, um, their health and well-being is of concern to the public. But the flip side of that is that even though they occupy that status, which is different than just you and me, um, they they are vulnerable to all of the mortal issues that we're all vulnerable to and deserving of privacy, particularly in difficult, uh, medical circumstances. So this is a, this is a hard, um, line to really balance, I think.
0: So we had, um, you know, this kind of thing that's been going on for the last four years with, um, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And uh, Harry, you know, came for the coronation, stayed 27 hours or whatever. He came to see his father and stayed one day. Um, We still don't see um, Meghan Markle doing anything related to her family. So they're still kind of living on this island in California. Um, Your thoughts on the visit and also on the quickness of him coming and then leaving.
4: Well, sure. Um, you know, and I've just written a piece uh, for Fox News that should be on, up on their site in a couple of days on exactly what we're, what you just asked. Um, Harry's visit can be seen and has been seen by the public in cutting two ways. Either, um, and as anyone would hope, um, this was the sincere concern of a son who was confronting his, you know, parent's mortality. And what would anybody do in that case, no matter where you lived, you would would go to see that parent uh, as soon as possible. Um, And Harry is not constrained by, you know, uh, a lot of the financial issues that most people are. He can pick up and go at the drop of a hat, which is what he did. Now, a different take on this, And some would say it's cynical, but I wouldn't because uh, is that Harry was doing this to be in the spotlight for his own PR. Um, And the reason I say that's not cynical is this is someone who has a history of uh, selling out his family's private matters for personal gain. And uh, he and his wife Uh, as their sort of fall from grace in Hollywood has shown, they don't really have a lot that keeps them relevant and interesting other than Harry, Harry's tie, the ties to Harry's family. So if they're cut off from that, um, who knows if they're able to succeed on their own steam.
0: Well, and it's so interesting when you think about him, everybody's making something about this short visit, but, um, I think that the the king had a schedule. He had had some treatment. He wants to have, you know, he wants to relax in a place that he's comfortable, and he's got the resources to be able to do that. And Harry's to the point where you can't trust the fact he won't share what you talk about because that's what he's done in the last three or four years. And while the, the king has clearly been the guy who's leaving the door open, Prince William, I think his first priority is his own family, and they've been hurt by some of the things that have been said, and so he's not going to open that door again for a very long time.
4: Well, you're exactly right. Um, I think this trip was a disaster for Harry because, um, look, you say the king had a schedule, etc. You know, if your son is going to come over, take an 11-hour flight, you um, you know, you would think you could give them a little more time, but I'm not faulting the king. I, Harry and his wife have acted absolutely abominably to the royal family. They've, they've said they're a racist family, creating terrible problems for them. They've shared their secrets. In Harry's book, Spare, he has insulted uh, his father's wife, the now queen, Camilla, calling her a villain, and an evil stepmother, Uh, um, they've insulted Kate, Uh, he's certainly insulted his brother, William. Uh, To my way of thinking, these are irredeemable sins, and I don't blame the king at all Or. Uh, his uh, Harry's brother, the Prince of Wales, who didn't give him any time at all, who didn't see him while he was there. I don't blame them at all. And another reason it was a disaster was, you know, uh, the, the royal family uh, essentially evicted Harry and Meghan from the only uh, residence that they had in the UK, and they were right to do so because they were, they were fearful, if Harry and Meghan came at will, that they would be taking down Every, every word that's he heard uh, to use in future media and publications to betray and attack the royal family. So uh, I think this was a disaster for Harry. It did not put him in a good light. And I think the king and Harry's brother, the Prince of Wales, Prince William, treated him with exactly what he deserved.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an interesting story to watch. The family has had a lot happen in the last four years between them leaving the death of Prince Philip, the death of Queen Elizabeth, the coronation of the king. And I think by all accounts, you know, Charles has done better than most people thought. I think he's he is his own man. You know, people wondered if he was. He is his own man. Uh, He has, you know, he's shown that he has the patience to wait. Right. In many ways. And I think he was when he has won the the British people over and many people in the world, because he's he.
4: I, yes, I fully agree. I fully agree with that. Um, and the queen, the queen who you know had a, a difficult uh, reception at various points along the way before she was queen. I believe that she has also uh, won over the world because she's got a very laid back, people friendly approach and she makes the king happy and and you know what what better characteristics could you want in a queen than that and also charles has done a fantastic job his first year he was filling very difficult shoes because queen elizabeth was universally loved the world over people had an impression about charles that he was this or that and he's really stepped to the plate he's proven himself as a great ambassador for the United Kingdom abroad, and he's earned the love and the respect of his people.
0: You know, and it's funny, when you think about Queen Elizabeth, you know, there's a lot of people that like to say, oh, they were distant parents, they weren't good parents, all of that kind of stuff. And it was a different world they grew up in. But I think if you look at, you know, the problems with Andrew notwithstanding, when you have a big family, you're going to have somebody that's, you know, that's got issues but all in all what you have is kind of people that are good adults the three out of four are good adults and know how to act in the world and that's pretty good parenting
4: well that's pretty good parenting and also martha let's not forget this is a tough job this is not a job you don't go home put your feet up, and be done with your job. This is a 24-hour job. You're constantly under scrutiny. And, you know, bravo for the king, who he, he's just received news that would devastate anyone, and he's still committed, while he's withdrawn from some, postponed some of his public appearances, he's still conducting his business he's still meeting with the prime minister he's still receiving the infamous red boxes that everybody knows about that contain the state papers and he is showing that he is the worthy heir to the beloved queen that was known for working until the day before she died
0: lee cohen columnist with the Spectator, The Sun. He's got a new piece coming out on Fox News. He's also with the Bow Group and the Danube Institute. Thank you so much for being with us today. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.